Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men, I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And Father, we pray that as we're standing here this morning as the people of God and the house of God, that Lord, in some ways, uh, this could be us presenting ourselves in attention to you. Lord, you're our commanding officer. And Lord, we assemble in these times to worship you and to honor you, but Lord, to be equipped as the body of Christ for works of ministry, to receive our marching orders for where we're at in life now, or maybe what this next week or season ahead holds. So as always, Lord, we just pray this morning, we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but each one of us could experience the demonstration of your spirit and power, speaking things personally to us in our hearts. Lord, speak now by your spirit through what you have spoken in the word of God originally. We pray that you'd give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive. And we ask now that you'd bless the word of God as we study it as an act of worship. And we pray this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as a dad, I had the privilege as a part of my ministry in the household to have a number of different unique jobs. And certainly one of the jobs that I took upon myself was I was the wake up man in the household. I not only am the one that tends to usually get up the earliest, but as my kids were growing up, I was the one, though they did not love me for it at that time, who on occasion would wake them up would get them out of bed when I determined that is enough sleep physically. That's all your body needs. Now it's time to get out of bed, whether it was off to school or whatever it was. That was part of my role was at times being the wake-up man. Well, every once in a while, I think we all, to some degree, need what we may refer to as we call it a wake-up call, right? We understand what that means, and we say that's a wake-up call. And every once in a while... We kind of need something in our life, I think, that reawakens us out of being asleep in our lives in some way. You know, just this past week, we, uh, one of the families from the church that we used to pastor back in York, Pennsylvania, they just lost their 20-year-old son to cancer. And such a sad thing, heartbreaking, as it spoke to the dad on the phone. And, but, you know, stuff like that, man, just 20 years old. Young man, family loves the Lord and stuff like that. And just in talking to the dad on the phone, he said, you know, Tony, I have never sensed more, again, just a sense of urgency for the gospel. And we're so looking forward to sharing the gospel uh, at his memorial service for his unsaved friends and the young people. And again, just stuff like that just has a way to kind of an experience, right, that we maybe go through from time to time that just has a way to kind of wake us up again, to realize, to remember what's important, 
to again think about what really matters most and kind of put our focus there to stir us maybe out of kind of a lethargic condition. And we can all kind of get like that sometime where we kind of just begin to doze off and get a little apathetic. And sometimes we need that wake-up call experience to kind of light a fire within us to get us alert once again. And I think that's especially true, not just in life generally, but I think a wake-up call is an important thing once in a while for the body of Christ. That we need that sometimes spiritually, right? Our fire kind of starts to grow dim. We talk about being on fire for the Lord. And sometimes we kind of need, as Paul talks about, to you know, stir up the fire. He tells Timothy, you know, to stir himself up once again. And sometimes we kind of need that to get us in that place where we're awake again to what matters. And Paul seems to kind of, if you can tell from reading these verses here this morning, in this section, that kind of seems to be what Paul's doing. In the midst of this long chapter about the resurrection from the dead and the reality that we do live beyond this life, it seems Paul's giving a wake-up call to this group of believers here in Corinth as he's addressing this next section. Now, we're going to see in this section something that's very important. I've said it from this pulpit before, but that is this, is that Paul clearly communicates here that belief drives behavior. Belief drives behavior. What you and I believe will always directly influence the way that we behave. Those two are inseparably linked, right? If I were to say in the middle of the Bible study this morning, the building's on fire. If you believe that, you probably wouldn't keep sitting here. You'd get up and you'd run out if you believe that that was true. If you didn't believe it was true, you would demonstrate that by continuing to sit here. But what we believe always influences what we behave, but that also means this. The way that we behave is a clear indication of what we really do believe. The way that we behave is a reflection of what we do believe or perhaps maybe what we don't believe. And that's Paul's argument in this section. Wrong belief will produce wrong ways of living. Those deceived will continue to commit error because they're living in a wrong belief system about whatever it may be. And right belief always yields righteous living. Right belief always keeps us alert and doing what pleases the Lord. And as seen in our study through 1 Corinthians, many ideas and views of the Greek culture had seemed to kind of creep into the church at Corinth. And they sadly had adopted a lot of the mindset of the ungodly world around them And the way the world did things, the world's moral system, the world's viewpoints and ideas, it seems that this had become in and kind of now was infiltrating the church. And a lot of this letter, Paul's addressing this. He's addressing how they were Christians living in a pagan world. But the problem was, is the pagan world was starting to push its way too much into the life of the church. And Paul's been in this letter saying that is not a good thing that the world was now influencing some within the church in Corinth in unhealthy ways and they were developing wrong beliefs which are producing wrong behavior and one area particular that this was going on which chapter 15 has been addressing was the denial of the resurrection of the dead and the denial that there was an afterlife in which we would be accountable for and it's implying wrongly to people who would believe that idea that there's no accountability for how you live now. You can live however you want now. In fact, you might as well live it up now because there's, there's nothing beyond this world. 
Nothing to be accountable for, nothing to one day answer to. So why sacrifice or suffer in this life? Indulge yourself to the greatest extent. There's no punishment for evil living, and there is no reward for doing anything good. And this has resulted in the spiritual lives of some in the church of Corinth becoming very unhealthy. And this is what Paul is kind of challenging now here in this section. He spent a great deal of time supplying already in the chapter evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that we as well in relationship with him will experience the same. And he now begins to offer more as we come, look with me in verse 29, where we pick back up. Paul says here, this rather peculiar verse in the midst of all this, he says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if they do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? So Paul here seems to be addressing a religious practice that was happening in some manner, even there in the church in Corinth, is that some people, he says, were being baptized for the dead. Now, let me just say, indeed, this is a very challenging verse in this book, probably one of the more challenging verses in the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, it's probably one of the more challenging verses in the entire New Testament of what in the world is Paul referring to there? Being baptized for the dead. See, we have no other explanation anywhere else in Paul's writings or the entirety of the New Testament of what this could actually be referring to. And as a result of that, there are multitudes of different ideas that commentators propose of what Paul was referring to here. We don't really know exactly what he was indeed referring to here. We can't be dogmatic of what he's describing when he talks about people actually being baptized. Notice he doesn't say baptized, he says for the dead. That is, they were doing it, you might say vicariously. The idea is that we're being baptized for those who have already died. So in some way, there was this practice going on of people being baptized in place of those who had already died. Now, what we do know is this. Nowhere does our Lord Jesus, as well as the entire New Testament, command for such a practice to be done. Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to do such for other people. However, as followers of Jesus, what we do know is for those of us who have experienced salvation by accepting Jesus Christ, by grace and through faith, and if we've chosen to leave our old way of life and follow the Lord, what we do know is that we are commanded as Christians, those who've been saved, we are commanded ourselves to get baptized as an act of obedience. That's an unquestionable thing, that we are to do it as a step of obedience, to be baptized, to identify our lives fully as being joined together with Christ personally. And water baptism is that outward demonstration of the inward work of salvation that has happened in our hearts. It does not save a soul. It does not eternally secure a soul because if it does, then that is a work. And Jesus would have never said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. He would have said, if someone can unpin you from the wooden cross and dunk you real quick, then I can assure you'll be in paradise. No, the man turned his heart in faith to Jesus and by grace through faith alone, he was saved and eternally secure. Water baptism is an act of obedience, an outward thing that we do. Yes, we should do it, 
but as an act of obedience unto our Lord to identify our lives with Jesus. And it is our way of publicly displaying outwardly the salvation that's happened inwardly that no one but us and God know happened. See, I can't see what's happened in your soul. God can. So the the water baptism is an outward public display. Hey, I want to stand publicly and declare openly that salvation has happened in my soul. It's our way of identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to demonstrate that outwardly. Because in water baptism, as we put you under the water, you temporarily disappear. And then as we bring you back up out of the water, you reappear once again, raised up out of the water. And it's a picture of our spiritual death to our old life, like Christ crucified, buried, disappeared for a time. And as we raise you back out of the water, it's a picture of how we spiritually have been raised back up by the power of Jesus' resurrection to now live a new spiritual life, different than the old way of life before we were converted, as well as the fact that when someone goes through a water baptism experience, their, their physical condition is completely changed, right? I've baptized many people over the years, and the way they look when I bring them out of the water is very different than before they go in the water. Makeup smeared, hair's all messed up, choking on water sometimes, and they're, they're soaking wet. They look very different. Their condition has changed. Well, again, that's a beautiful picture because when you are baptized spiritually into the body of Christ, your spiritual condition has changed. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. And so it's a beautiful reflective thing that we do to identify our relationship with Christ. Listen to how Paul describes that in Romans chapter six. He says this, do you not know as many of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin would be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then Paul says, likewise, you also, being joined with him, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it is for this reason Jesus has commanded us to publicly display this spiritual reality in water baptism, to honor the Lord, to publicly and openly proclaim that we've experienced salvation. And listen, let me just say to you, we do this every summer. If you recently have received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, this is something that Jesus commands you to do. It is a day where you put your flag in the sand. I don't care if you've been saved for six days or six months or six years. If you've never done it yet, you do it to honor Jesus and to publicly display the inward work of salvation before others. Or if you've recently come back to Christ, listen, this is an important step in your spiritual life that you would take that stand of water baptism. Yet why then would Paul, and what is Paul describing here in verse 29, understanding what we do, Why are some, he mentions here, being baptized for the dead there in the church at Corinth? Well, 
it appears that this was a pagan practice that was actually happening among some of the idolatrous worship systems in the Greek religious life. That those who were among the pagan Greek culture that worshipped all types of different deities, that some of them at times would be baptized for the dead to try and curry favor with the gods that they were worshipping. So apparently this was a practice among the pagan religions. They believed that you could be baptized for your dead friend or your dead relative, and it kind of helped them curry favor out there in the afterlife, in the netherworld. And that if you stood and did this religious practice on their behalf, that somehow you could do something to benefit them in the afterlife and your religious devotion somehow assisted them or made their eternal condition better. Uh, Notice, however, this was something, Paul, look at the pronoun usage. I think this helps us answer what's going on. Paul says, this is something that, what's he say there? They do. Notice in the very next verse, he says, why do we, he's using the pronoun we, meaning we who are Christians, me and my ministry team, those of us who are believers, where in this verse, Paul's saying, why do they, not we, why do they baptize the dead or for the dead? So Paul here to me is distinguishing here. This isn't something that he practiced or the church should practice or Christians should practice. Paul says, this is something that they do in their pagan ideas, outside of scripture, those who are deceived and not in right relationship with God. It's possible Paul's addressing this because some in the church at Corinth, perhaps like other worldly ideas, had borrowed this idea from out in the pagan world and that some of them were now doing this as Christians. Some had gotten saved. Maybe they died before they had a chance to get water baptized. And some of their friends and relatives who were concerned for them thought, hey, while you're dunking me, can you say one for Bob too? Because he never got a chance to get baptized. And that maybe they were kind of intermixing this idea here because they thought it was so essential. Now, let me just say in connection to this by way of application, sadly, this is where the erroneous idea has surfaced in the wrong doctrine of Mormons who in error, contrary to scripture, baptize people for the dead. That is why, if you've ever noticed, they are so into genealogies. The reason that Mormons are so into genealogies is because they actually practice this religious uh, protocol of baptizing people for their dead relatives. And that's why the genealogy thing is so important to Mormons. They think somehow it can help in the afterlife. Yet, listen, the Bible nowhere teaches this. In fact, Hebrews chapter 9 clearly tells us each person is appointed to die once and afterwards to face judgment or accountability for their own life. You can do nothing to help someone once they have passed. Regardless, Paul's point here seems to be to argue for the logic of resurrection, You notice Paul mentions this practice. He's not condoning it. This is something they do. Why did they do that? But Paul's not, you know, condoning the practice. And he's not even, you can notice here, he doesn't even spend a whole lot of time to refute the practice. He doesn't even spend a whole bunch of time to say, hey, this is wrong and why it's wrong. What he does is he uses this present activity of some to argue for the logical reasoning, as he's been through the chapter, of resurrection. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He says, 
to prove once again that people innately believe in resurrection from the dead and that we do experience an afterlife, he says, it would be illogical for them out there. Why would they be baptizing people for the dead if they didn't believe there's something beyond death? And so Paul's saying, it's just logical. If the resurrection's not real, then he says, it would be illogical for them to be doing what they are doing out there in the world. And that you should not, he's saying, be doing there in Corinth. The translation of another Bible, it says it this way. It says, if the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do we do it unless someday one would rise again? Or why do it unless one day one would rise again? Again, the very fact that they were doing it indicates, Paul saying, pagans believe in life after death. And Paul's argument here is, wait a minute. If pagans believe in life after death, woo shouldn't we as Christians? And if they're that devoted, they'd be baptized for a dead person, a relative, a friend. Then he's saying, shouldn't we as Christians all the more be living in right relationship with the Lord and be faithful in every way to him? We should have a greater eternal mindset. We should have a much greater concern about the things of the afterlife. So Paul goes on to then say, to kind of further emphasize these things, verse 30, and why he says also, do we stand in jeopardy every hour? The idea is, if there's no resurrection from the dead, why would we do such, he says? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of some, or in the manner of men, excuse me, I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me. So notice Paul now transitions back to discussing how he and his ministry team that traveled around serving with him lived in light of the reality of resurrection. How we, Paul says, are currently living in light of eternal realities. And what's Paul indicating in these verses here? Things like that they were willing to embrace personal risk. They were willing to endure personal sacrifice. They were even willing to undergo some suffering because they saw beyond the temporal existence. Do you see the thing Paul's alluding to in our verses here? He says, we live in jeopardy every hour. The idea is we live in jeopardy of personal harm. He's saying, why would we take personal risk if there's no hope beyond the grave? That would just be foolish, Paul's saying. If there's nothing to gain from it. He says, I die, he says there in verse 31, I die daily. The idea there literally is I face death daily. And Paul almost literally did that. When you read the account of his life in the book of Acts, he was willing to die to himself every day and face the death experience if it should happen for serving Christ. Paul mentions in verse 32 there how he encountered beasts like men and brutally treating him in Ephesus for the cause of Jesus. Paul's belief and confidence in the resurrection, you may fairly say this, became a powerful incentive for him to live passionately and radically for Christ. It was his eternal mindset and the reality that he so strongly believed that there was absolutely something to gain beyond the grave that caused Paul to have such a strong incentive to live so radically for Jesus the way he did. And again, an incentive is that which motivates or encourages us to do something. So it was the resurrection from the dead and the afterlife reality that motivates Paul 
to live this way. I mean, notice his reasoning. He says, if there's no hope beyond the resurrection of the dead, then he says, why would I and my ministry team, he says there in verse 10, why would we stand in jeopardy every hour? I mean, what would there be to gain out of that? Why would we, you know, put ourselves in risk of personal harm every hour? He said, that would make no logical sense to risk your own welfare for nothing. Who would do that, Paul's saying? Why would you risk your own personal welfare? Why would we face personal danger for absolutely nothing if there's no assurance of anything beyond the grave? Paul says that wouldn't even make logical sense in any way. Again, it was Paul's belief in resurrection and the afterlife that prompted him, you might say, to be willing to overcome natural human tendencies that we all have within ourselves in our sinful flesh. And what is the natural human tendency of our sinful flesh? It's this. It's to be self-serving and it's to live in a manner of self-preservation, right? Your desire to survive is an incredibly strong thing in your natural life. A person's you know, drive to stay alive is an incredibly powerful thing. And it is our natural person who leads us to not only be self-serving, but to live in a self-preserving way. And you can see Paul here, in essence, is overcoming that. He's not doing what is ever best for his welfare and disregarding others, but that's what the natural person does. Our natural human nature makes us do what is best for us, to not consider others. It causes us to be directed by protecting ourselves, looking out for our interests, thinking about whatever's in the interest of our best welfare, keeping ourselves happy and safe, and whatever's best for me, that's the way my life is governed and directed. That's the natural human tendency of every one of us that we all struggle within. Our flesh opposes a life of self-sacrifice. My flesh does not want to think about you it just doesn't it likes to think about me my sinful nature my human tendency doesn't want to think about you know what would be you know keeping you happy it wants what makes me happy and that's the natural struggle we all deal with as human beings keep myself safe keep myself happy protect myself protect my own interests yet paul seeing the bigger picture was able to say you know what I'm willing to set that aside and live differently because that's what Paul's alluding to in these verses here that he lived by faith and for eternity and whatever the cost, Paul said, yeah, there may be personal risk, but the reason I'll take personal risk is because I believe there's something beyond this life. I believe there's a higher purpose. I believe heaven is real and eternity matters. And so therefore Paul was willing to push beyond those things and even take personal risk and make sacrifices and even at times suffer in his life. And again, Paul wasn't just saying these things to sound noble. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11 as Paul describes how he lived and was willing to endure such things. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman in the modern world, Paul would, but I have served him far more. Paul says, I have worked harder, have been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, faced death again And again, five different times, the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. That's the scourging experience. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. You ready to be a missionary? Who feels called to ministry? Once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. I faced danger, he says, in cities, in the deserts, on the seas. And I faced dangers from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Boy, they would not use Paul to market for a ministry training school. But again, I bring this to your attention because Paul's not exaggerating when he says, why would we live in jeopardy the way that we do? Why would we take such personal risk all the time to endanger our own welfare, to be harmed or hurt or put to death if this all wasn't real? That wouldn't make sense. Paul's not arrogantly just trying to sound noble when he says there in verse 31, I die daily. Paul wasn't just trying to sound spiritual and poetic. Oh, that's wow, Paul. Literally, when you read the book of Acts, how can you read the book of Acts and not see that Paul literally faced death on a daily basis? There were people literally always trying to kill Paul for faithfully serving Jesus, for being committed to the cause of Christ. His choice to live for the Lord literally endangered his life. Paul said, I actually have to choose every day to die to myself and to accept the reality that if I worship Jesus and I work for Jesus and I do what he's calling me to do, I truly may lose my life for that. And every day, literally, Paul had to have that mindset as he lived out his life. But it was this man's love and appreciation for what Jesus did for him that was a great incentive because he knew, I know what Christ has done for me, and I know what Christ has in store ahead of me in eternity. So therefore, it's not all about this life. I'm ready to die daily. And if I got to die to be loyal to Jesus, then, then Paul says, then I just graduate a little sooner. And again, it was this eternal mindset that he had. That's why he describes even in verse 32 how he had fought, he says, notice, with beasts, he says, in the city of Ephesus. Now, Paul could be referring to literal beasts in an arena. That was something that they did to torture Christians from time to time. We have no reference of that in Paul's writings. It's likely that he's referring to beasts like men. Because you notice he says, verse 32, in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. And when you read Paul's experiences in the book of Acts about his time in the city of Ephesus, there were men there who opposed the apostle Paul and his teaching in Ephesus that were like ferocious, brutal, beast-like people. I mean, they literally were ferocious in wanting to resist Paul and fight against him and intervene because Paul was interrupting their evil practices in society, and they hated that. They hated that Paul was shining light on the dark, destructive, evil things that they were doing in society. And they, like ferocious beasts, were trying to devour Paul in light of that very reality. Yet what did Paul do? Paul didn't back down, right? Do you see what Paul says there? I fought with the beasts. Paul says, I fought with the beasts. I wasn't going to say, look, just because you're evil, you're entitled to just destroy everybody in the society. Paul says, no. I'm going to fight the good fight. And Paul says, I didn't passively just put my head in the sand. Paul said, I didn't cowardly back down. I fought against evil because it was the right thing to do, Paul says. 
Paul fought the good fight and bravely sought to advance the gospel and stand up against beasts like evil men and to protect what was good and what was godly. And Paul was a man who was certainly not into convenient, comfortable Christian living. I mean, this guy did not shrink back spiritually in self-preservation. He did what he did without thinking about how do I avoid suffering or sacrifice or maintain a comfy life? And that's why Paul's saying there, look, if these things weren't true, he says, verse 32, what advantage would any of this be to me? Again, he's just using logical reasoning. He's saying, if these things aren't true, it would be illogical for me to live and to serve Christ the way that I do. Paul, such a wonderful model of living now with an eternal perspective. In fact, Paul says this in Acts 20. I've always loved it. I think it connects well with what he's saying here. Paul says, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city saying that chains and hardships await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Paul says, the one thing the Holy Spirit keeps testifying to my heart about is, Paul, where you're headed out there in the world, it's going to be hard. Chains and hardships await you. And Paul says, that didn't intimidate me to say, well, okay, then I'm, I better keep myself safe. I better keep myself safe. I guess I, I'm just, I can't serve Jesus. I'm just going to have to keep myself safe. And Paul says, no, none of these things move me. They're not going to move me off course, Paul says. I'm going to worship Jesus and work for Jesus and follow Jesus. And Paul says, I don't count my life dear to myself. Now, how could a man say that? Because he'd already died to himself. That's why. Because Paul had already died to himself. As far as he was concerned, Paul's life was dead. And it belonged to Christ. His life belonged to Jesus. So he said, I, whatever happens, the Lord's will be done. So Paul says, I'm not going to let those things move me off course. You know, good thing to ask ourselves from time to time. Again, this spiritual wake-up call. Ask yourself this morning, what does it take to move you spiritually? What does it take to move you off course? What does it take to move you from faithfully worshiping the Lord? What does it take to stop you from being committed to worshiping Jesus? What does it take to move you off course from fulfilling maybe some calling or plan or purpose the Lord has for you? If being faithful to walk with the Lord means standing in jeopardy, would you still do it? If being faithful to the Lord meant some personal risk to your life, a loss of a job or somebody's disapproval or truly, I mean, just something could actually literally personal risk, something harmful could happen to you simply because of walking with Jesus are you still willing to do it? Are you willing to stand in jeopardy simply to be faithful to the Lord? Are we willing to die to ourselves every day, to die to our desires, to die to our own self-interest and the self-preservation and our own convenience and comfort in order to live committed to Christ? Are we willing to do that? Again, Jesus' call to true discipleship is pretty radical when we remember and think about what our Lord said. Remember, Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, oh, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus didn't find it trendy to, to be a Christian. Jesus said we should count the cost. Remember, Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him, what, daily deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus said that's daily discipleship saying no to ourselves, denying the self-life and everything about self-preservation and self-comfort and saying no to ourselves 
and, and being willing to pick up our own cross, which is to embrace the will of God, the Christ-like life, and to follow Jesus. That's a strong challenge, but yet Paul says this is, this is what matters. You know, this morning, let me ask this before we move on as well. Like Paul says that he fought with the beasts at Ephesus, are you and I willing to not run away from evil, beast-like people? Well, there are a few out in our culture. Are we willing, like Paul, to not run from evil and passively let it just triumph in ruining our society and let beast-like people devour our children and devour what's good and healthy and moral in our world? Are we willing to say, you know what, I'm willing to stand up and fight against those who, like vicious, evil beasts, are trying to destroy and harm and ruin things? You know, I love the words of Nehemiah, great call to all of us. Nehemiah says this in Nehemiah 4.14, don't be afraid of them. He says this about their enemies. Don't be afraid of them. You remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your home. Again, believing in the resurrection, believing there's something beyond all this physical existence, that should be a huge incentive to us as the Lord's people. It should be a major motivator for us to be faithful to the Lord and think about what's eternal. Paul's point is there'd be no advantage, he says, if none of this was true. That's why he says the end of verse 32, he says, look what he says there. If the dead do not rise, then look what Paul says. He quotes a, a, a statement from the culture, from the Epicureans. Then let us eat and drink, he says. For tomorrow we die. Paul says, if there's no hope beyond the grave, we might as well embrace the philosophy of the Epicurean people out there who were saying, look, there's no afterlife. Just grab everything you can in this life. Eat and drink and party and indulge yourself because you never know. Tomorrow you might die and you don't want to miss out on some form of pleasure. So life is all about you, and this may be your last day of existence. Grab all you can and indulge all you can. See if there's nothing beyond the grave, right? What incentive do you have to do anything other than to just indulge yourself here and now selfishly? I mean, if there's nothing beyond the grave, it makes sense. If there's nothing beyond the grave and it could be your last day, then every day should be about you. And it should be about indulging yourself and pleasure and enjoyment, and that should be the top priority. You know, it's interesting. The Bible teaches that a person's lifestyle speaks a great deal about their belief system. He says that's why they live like that out in the world, because they don't believe in anything beyond the grave. But he says when a Christian lives in self-preservation and constantly indulging their own selfish desires and living for personal pleasure, and they're over-entangled in the affairs of this life, Paul's simply saying they've lost an eternal perspective. They've lost the picture that we're just traveling through here, and that's why, as the Bible warns many times, at times as Christians, we're cautioned against falling in love with this present world system. Yes, we have to exist here. We're in the world, but we're not supposed to be of it. So every once in a while, God warns us, look, be careful. There should be a distinction between how we live as God's people and those in the world do. Paul then says, verse 33, and do not be deceived. Evil company, he says, corrupts good habits. So Paul here identifies what had happened to many in the church at Corinth. 
that had caused some of them as Christians to begin to compromise into carnal living as believers. And that is they had allowed the evil worldly people in the world who weren't serving God to influence, as I said, their perspectives and their patterns and lifestyles. You might fairly say overexposure to ungodly people had infected the Christians at Corinth. And it had polluted their lives morally and spiritually. Paul says here in verse 33, they had become deceived. That is, they'd allowed themselves to become misled and they've lost proper perspective spiritually. See, the pagan world, obviously, because they denied resurrection in the afterlife, as I said, they lived self-serving lives. Makes total sense why they said, hey, let's eat, drink, party it up. Tomorrow we die. So life was about fun and pleasure and doing what was best for you. And that mindset is what led to many of the evil practices in society. It's that mindset that leads people to behave in evil ways and to indulge themselves. But the world's mindset, Paul's going to say, can't be embraced by God's people. They can't take the way the world lives as a pattern and adopt it for ourselves as the people of God. The church had become deceived because they were being wrongly influenced by evil in the world, and they were beginning to behave just like the ungodly around them. And they had failed to recognize, Paul's saying here in verse 33, they'd failed to recognize what was going on. Like the frog in the pot, just gradually, gradually, the water was getting turned up, and they didn't even realize that they were beginning to become just like the world. And they had gradually began to embrace those things. So Paul actually quotes here a proverb from one of the poets meander in that day, which was this. He says, verse 33, evil company corrupts good habits. One translation renders it bad company corrupts good character. And Paul quotes this as one of their poets had said this because he's saying even the world knows this truth. Even the world, he's saying, understands this principle, which is this. You will become just like the company that you keep, right? If you take your little dog at home and you let it go run next week with the wolves, your little dog is not going to domesticate the wolves. What's going to happen is your little dog is going to become just like that pack of wolves, right? And we all understand this reality. You become just like the company that you keep. That's why it's wise to pick companions carefully because we automatically tend to do this. Again, a way I could, in a sense, illustrate this, it's just like when we contract illness, right? This should be very obvious what we've just all, you know, gone through. It's just like when you contract illness, You know, when you contract illness, you're infected by illness, and then the infection of the illness gradually then makes your health deteriorate, right? So when you're infected, your health gradually deteriorates symptomatically. Well, in the same way, your character, my life habits will take a turn in a bad direction, morally and spiritually, if I've had too much exposure to an ungodly, evil person who then infects me with the way that they are, and then it will gradually begin to cause that symptomatically in my life, where good habits will then be replaced by bad habits. And good character will become an evil heart. And if this is true generally just in society, how much more is this important, listen, for us as Christians? He's saying that just happens out in the world, right? You don't even have to be a Christian family. Parents say, don't hang out with him. 
Johnny, don't you hang out with Frankie. I, I know what Frankie's like. I don't want you hanging out with Frankie. Why? Because you're going to get like Frankie. And he's saying, look, if the world knows that, how much more is this important for us to pay, aware, pay attention to as believers? So Paul challenged him. He says, look, don't be deceived. Evil company, he says to them, is going to corrupt, defile good habits. Associating with evil people in your social life too much is going to lead to absorbing their evil ideas or their evil views or their patterns of living. Oh, I don't hang out with ungodly people, but yeah, but do you constantly hang out with ungodly social media? Because that'll do the same thing. So he says, be careful. The company you keep, the things you're always listening to, it's going to begin to have a defiling effect. Now, look, certainly in moderation, we all need to interact with the ungodly, unsaved world. We can't isolate ourselves as Christians. No one's ever going to get saved. So it's not that we don't interact with the unsaved world. We have to influence and build relationships and try and lead people to Christ. Yet our primary companionship for social interaction cannot be unsaved people. And it's so important that we remember this. If a Christian primarily keeps company with those who are unsaved and not serving the Lord, this will begin to corrupt and defile the Christian's life. Good habits will begin to disappear. Bad habits will begin to develop, and you'll begin to pick up that because of too much exposure and interaction with morally evil people. And then you will become infected with that, and it will then deteriorate your moral condition. And perhaps, I don't know, maybe this describes some of your present experience currently. Perhaps a little wake-up call to evaluate. What kind of company are you keeping? God says, don't be deceived. If this is going on, wake up to the root of the problem, God says. Evil company is going to corrupt good, good habits and character. God says, pay attention. Wake up to what's going on. This is an important practical reality. A believer must monitor who they spend their time with socially, which means that I have to detach myself from social companions, maybe that are bad or evil influences, and I also need to listen, not just detach from ungodly companionships, but I need to determine to spend time with godly people so that their behavior can encourage me and stir me up towards the things of the Lord. The Lord totally used this verse in a powerful way in my life. About a year after I was saved, this verse came off the page and bit me. I got saved the month after I graduated high school, radically converted to the Lord from not even being raised in the church or anything. I had a best friend got saved. He led me to Christ. But then I I went away for the one year that I uh, went to college. I went away the first year after high school, and I went away as a brand-new Christian. I was super excited about Jesus, and I heard there was a Christian group on campus, but I just was still kind of in this mindset, oh, well, Christians, some of them might be weird, man. And I was a brand new Christian, and I loved the Lord, but I kept hanging out with all my roommate and the guys on my hall, and none of them were saved. And so I was going to the parties. Well, I'll just go to the parties, and I won't drink. And, I, and so I'll just go there, and I'll just you know, keep, take it. And, and, and I did this probably for the first month or two I was away at college, and I realized, man, why am I so miserable? And I just couldn't understand what was wrong with me. And I went back to my dorm room, and I locked myself away, and I was just praying and reading my Bible. What is wrong? What am I? What am I doing wrong? And I read this verse, and it was like, that's it, Lord. That's it. All my friendships and social acquaintances are with unsaved, evil, ungodly people, and I'm not spending time with Christians. 
No wonder I'm struggling spiritually. No wonder I'm wrestling. Look, Paul is saying this because as Christians, we should be strongly influencing the unsaved world. That's what we should be doing. We should be influencing the evil people to turn towards God and towards good. But there is something very, very wrong when the evil world system starts corrupting the character of Christians. And when the evil world system starts corrupting the conditions of the church, something is greatly wrong when that starts to happen. And indeed, I think that is a very prevalent threat. Let us not be asleep. That is a very prevalent threat to what's going on in the modern church. Is the world system is what we're trying to embrace and adopt. And now we have people in the church and Christians who are living in in the same evil, sinful, ungodly patterns as people out in the world are. And something's very wrong with that, God says. Shouldn't be like that. So what's the antidote? Well, Paul gives it to us in verse 34. He says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So what's the antidote? Paul simply says, in essence, wake up. Wake up, he says there in the church. Don't you realize in this world, Paul says, there's always going to be those among you who he says, verse 34, don't have the knowledge of God that you do. Paul says, you can't escape it. There are people all around you who don't know God and they don't know the word of God and they don't know the will of God. And so therefore, he says, you need to realize they're living in the dark, but you have to understand that's why you got to be able to distinguish because you have the light, Paul says. And it's interesting to me that Paul says here, he says, you know, it's kind of a shame. See what he says? It's kind of a shame, verse 34, that I even have to talk to you about this at Corinth there. He's saying what's, what's even worse is you've allowed yourself to slip into compromise and behave just like those in the world. And can I fairly say, what a shame, isn't it? When a Christian behaves in the same evil ways that ungodly people in the world do. That is a shame. And it should be a shame. It's something that shocks us. Well, what's the answer? Paul says two things. Verse 34, he says, wake up to righteousness and stop sinning, he says. Just wake up and stop sinning. He says, you've allowed yourself to fall asleep spiritually and compromise on living what was right. So Paul says, wake up. You're not living right. And he says, stop the sin. He's just saying, avoid it, abandon it, recognize it for what it is. He said, you've been drifting there spiritually. And he says, a boat that's left adrift eventually is going to shipwreck. And Paul didn't want that to happen. And he didn't want the church to be weakened. So he says, wake up to right living once again and do not sin. And the language in the Greek is literally stop sinning any longer. The idea is There was sin going on, and Paul says it needs to stop. Identify it, admit it, repent of it, abandon it. Look, this morning, is it possible that this could be something the Lord is saying to us, to you? That the Lord is giving a wake-up call. Romans 13 says this, And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is at hand or almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light that is to fight the Lord's battles. Let us behave decently 
as in the daytime, not carousing, partying, and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and strife and jealousy. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Let's stand together and let's pray.